You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Okay, everyone. Hello. I am Zoe, a professional game designer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And we are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs, ideas, campaigns, all that good stuff. And today we're doing a text that Mac is very excited to discuss that I have no idea or history about. But before that, we do want to mention a few cool things. We have a fantastic and growing Discord community, so please do join in the conversation. Come chat with us, come talk with us. We have some really cool people doing really cool stuff in there. Everything from like LARPing and uh, reenacting or, or crafting medieval stuff to throwing homebrews in. People are LARPing in the Discord? How? Well, not LARPing in the dis. No, not LARPing in the Discord. They're, they're doing reenactment stuff. Oh. SCA stuff. And like talking about it in, in the, the Discord. Discord. <laughs> yes, talking about it. <laughs> Although I guess if you want us to make a LARP channel, we can? I don't think we can. <laughs> we can make know. a role-playing People... channel. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, point is, we have a Discord. It's fun. Please do check us out. We are in- inviting everyone all of the time. We also have our other social media, our Instagram, Twitter. If you want to get a hold of us, please do. And we also have a Patreon. So if you like the show, you want to support us just, you know, with hosting, upkeep, things like that, helping our recording and our audio get better and better, or just buy us a coffee, then the Patreon is there. So that is always very welcome and very well received. And in return, you get cool, new, exclusive things, bonus episodes, exclusive TTRPG homebrew stuff from things that we talk about in these episodes. So very fun, very cool. There's some merch in there too. Anyway, if you want to check that out, it's there. The bonus episodes are new, by the way. We are recording the first one of them after we finish recording this regular episode. Yes, absolutely. So that'll be out in uh, February. Yeah, so it will have been up for a while by the time this airs. By the time you hear this, yeah. Anyway, point being, it's there, it's fun, it's cool. We invite you to participate, whether that's just in the Discord or whether it's becoming a patron. All of these options are available to you. But with that, let's jump into the text we have prepared today and glean what we can from it and turn it into a weird and wonderful TTRPG adventure. So, Mac... What are we discussing today? Well, first we're discussing the unusual emphasis you put on the word glean. I like the word glean. <laughs> it's like it's like glitter and gold. What can I say? I'm like a crow. I'm like a raccoon. I like having shinies in my hands. I'm surprised you didn't go straight for dragon there. I mean, I wouldn't want to presume that I'm as great <laughs> as a dragon. I'm, I'm happy to be a corvid. Fair, fair. Like, if you give me a really nice rock, I will cherish that rock. It will go on my windowsill. I do have several really nice rocks. I understand the impulse. Right? It's a great date idea, by the way, is to find each other, like, the nicest rock that you can. And, like, this is not, like, a euphemism. This is not, like, a thing for engagement rings. Like, literally, just, like, go to a beach, find cool rocks. Like, rocks that match each other's eyes. Rocks with stripes in them. It's just fun. But... My mom goes beachcombing a lot, so I guess I grew up with this culture of collecting rocks. But anyway. I endorse this too. 
It's a fun thing to do. Plus, I just like the word glean. All right. Okay, now we can that, discuss the Does that the satisfy text. your... <laughs> now that we've satisfied Mac's curiosity <laughs> about my emphasis. So, the text that I have here is called Sidrak and Bacchus. It is a Middle English adaptation of a 13th century French book. This book is, in turn, set in, quote, the East, unquote, sometime in the pre-Christian era. The East. Are we presuming the Middle East, or are we presuming Asia East? Unclear, probably the Middle East. We'll get, there's okay. a little bit of a location clue, but we'll, we'll get to it. All right. And, and just before we start, Bacchus as in Bacchanalia, Bacchus as in the god. No. Okay. Good clarification, then. No, it is spelled B-O-K-K-U-S. And as far as I can tell, he is not named after Bacchus the god, although he might be, actually. That had not occurred to me. Oh, okay. I mean, that to be fair, a lot of fit. Roman... Yeah, a lot of Roman Greek names were, you know, just turned into common names. So it would not be too odd. It's sort of like having, you know, Jesus be a name. And in the story, he is a pagan. So maybe. Okay, good to know. Good to know. So this this text is basically a didactic text that's wrapped in a frame story. Okay, so define didactic for us. It is a text that's trying to teach you something. Got it. A bit of a moralistic tale, then. No, no, literally trying to teach you something. It is, it's, it has, like, nature facts. Oh, okay, cool. Nature facts. We're learning things with Sidorak and Bacchus. All right. Although, a text that's trying to teach a moral lesson does also count as didactic, and I think usually when we describe, like, modern texts as didactic, that's what we mean. That's generally where we go. But I've usually heard it refer used to describe, like, uh, Victorian children's literature and the like. Understood. Makes sense. But anyway, the frame story, which is what we're going to do this episode, because we don't have time to do more, is the great king Bacchus, who is sometimes described as a Babylonian emperor, but this version of the text doesn't really firmly situate him anywhere specific, except it mentions that his lands border India. And that's the only clue we get okay. to location, is we're next to India. In what direction? Good to know. I don't know. But it might be, like, kind of a Middle Easty area, possibly. Makes sense. I don't think our 13th century French author had a good grasp on the geography. No, I, I wouldn't imagine that he did. We'll let, it, we'll let that one slide. But so this king asks the philosopher Sidrak, whom I have seen described as Jewish, but in this version at least, he's just anachronistically Christian. Okay. Because it's explicitly set before any of the events of the New Testament. But Sidrak, because of his hmm. great wisdom, knows the events of the New Testament are going to happen. Okay. All right. Akin to one of the prophets, maybe? Yeah. I guess he counts as a prophet, actually. We can call him that. Okay, cool. We'll lean into that one, shall we say? Yeah. So the text is structured that Bacchus is asking Sidrak, a long series of questions on various topics. Sidrak answers, and the reader is meant to take his answers as gospel truth, literally gospel truth, since, as I mentioned, he predicts the events of the New Testament. Right. Because we are told that he has been divinely granted knowledge of all things past and present. Possibly through direct divine intervention, possibly because he has Noah's old astronomy book. 
because both of these things are true. I didn't know Noah had an astronomy book, but that makes sense about... I mean, what else are you going to do when you're on the Ark for 40 days and 40 nights? Right, and yeah. There's nothing else to look at. That's true. It is just stars and water. Yeah. And I guess the zoo. Yeah. You do have all those animals to take care yeah. of, after all. So this comes from a very long tradition of philosophical dialogues, shall we say. Yes. Which originate-ish with... Socrates and Plato and going on to Aristotle and then it sort of kept going from there. So this was a very common slash popular way of discussing these issues, divining them, if you will, just sort of elucidating them to an audience. Yes. All right. So having read this thing, I am genuinely unsure whether it lost some important bits in the adaptation or if it's just straight nonsense. Since there are no modern English translations of any version of this book, I'm limited to just the Middle English, and I have no way to check the original French text. Okay. A text out of time. So, Burton, the guy who compiled the 1998 Early English Text Society edition I'm working from, which is a comparative edition of the two Middle English manuscript traditions, describes its purpose as, quote, infotainment. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, I've never heard that phrase applied to a medieval text, but I really like it. That applies to a lot of medieval texts when you think about it. It does. Uh, he also notes, however, that there seem to be several surviving manuscripts, which means it was more popular than you'd expect from anything described as infotainment. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, it's not just some lone unhinged ranter explaining what he thinks is true. Burton demonstrates that most of the information in Sidrak and Bacchus is sourced from other popular medieval texts. Again, very common thing. Yeah, in some cases, classical texts that are popular in the medieval era. This is precisely what Herodotus did, by the way. So Herodotus is the guy who, quote unquote, invented history. He's the guy who like first wrote down what could be termed a history, which essentially was just a bunch of people telling him stories about different places, and he wrote it all down. It's history so, in the same way that, that the Golden Bough is anthropology. Yes. That is, it's, it's fun to read, but it's not exactly a rigorous example of the discipline. Yes, precisely. While we're introducing things, let's take a moment to establish the pedigree of these characters. Burton concludes that Sidrak is the author's OC, but has been intentionally named to be reminiscent of both Shadrach from the Book of Daniel and of Yeshua ben Sirach, author of the book generally known as Ecclesiasticus, which is biblical canon in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, but not the Protestant. It is apparently distinct from Ecclesiastes, which, I don't know, I guess I'm just not versed in my Christianity enough to know that. <laughs> apparently, the timeline doesn't line up right for either of these two to be this Sidrach, and I'm just going to take Burton's word for it, rather than fall down the rabbit hole of biblical literalism. Yeah, very fair. The name Bacchus, as you mentioned, it might be from the god. It might also come from Nebuchadnezzar. It sounds kind of like yep. the middle. And it's also the name of a couple of Mauritanian kings who crop up in Roman histories that the author would have been familiar with. So who knows? He's probably likewise an OC who's named after those guys the same way Sidrak is. So getting into it, I'm going to tell the frame story and I'm going to summarize the frame story because it's over a thousand lines of verse. Fair enough. I was originally planning to do a direct translation, but I don't think we really Ooh. have time for that. 
since the debate of the Carpenter's Tools was less than a third as long and it filled a whole episode. Yes, understandable. But if anyone's interested in, like, a text translation of this, like, let me know. I'll do it. Anyway, we're going to do just the story this time, but I want to do a future episode where I throw some of the questions at you and see if you can guess the answers. Oh boy, okay. I'm sure that'll be fun. I'm sure it will be too. So, the story. The author introduces the text with a brief invocation of God, which reminds me of classical poets invoking the muses. Mm -hmm. He then tells us that A, this text is educational, and B, it talks about events that happened in the East. Then the plot starts. Okay. 847 years after Noah's death, there was a great king named Bacchus, whose lands bordered India. He wants to build a city on that border from which to wage his war against Garab, another king who rules, quote, much of India, unquote. This city will apparently not permit any Jews within its walls. You'd think this would come up later, given that we're in Old Testament times and Sidrach is a worshipper of the Abrahamic God, but it doesn't. <laughs> it's just that one line. And it also refers to them as, hmm. quote, the Red Jews, unquote. Oh, jeez. Which, according to the author's commentary, or the author? Compiler's commentary, is an example of archaic anti-Semitism. And if you want to understand what that's about, he recommends a whole book on the subject because it's... No one uses that term anymore, to my knowledge. You have to go read up on it no. to understand exactly in what ways it's horrible. Do we have a clue of what it's referring to, or is it, or does he just reference the book? You know, let me pull up his commentary. I've got it set aside right over here. Fair enough. That's so curious to me, particularly because he's outlining that they don't include the Jews when that was very, very common in this period for medieval cities and peoples to do, like Christian cities and peoples to do. So is he trying to like make them look bad? Is he trying to make them look relatable? I wonder what the emphasis is. All right. So he cites an article and a book, and this is what he gives us about the contents. Gao, who's the author of the book, believes that the term Red Jews is found only in German-language texts and points out that in Middle High German, Rot, I might be saying that wrong, but the word for red, had an important secondary meaning, i.e. duplicitous, wicked, faithless, or cunning. He notes also that in manuscript illuminations, Jews were stereotyped as red-haired. Huh. I mean, well, that explains why, like, folklorically the Irish are not to be trusted or like redheaded folks in general are not to be trusted is that that carries across. I hadn't heard that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also those with red hair are fae. That's an, that's yeah. another common one. I had heard that they don't have souls, but I think that's more of a modern joke than an actual folkloric thing. But this is where it comes from. That's the thing. Ah, okay. Yep. Goes oh. all the way back, I guess. All right, yeah, so that happens. Also to note, the copy I'm using is from the university library, and some past student has penciled annotations in the margins. Awesome. We love these annotations. And here they have written, Garab versus Baki. Oh. Anyway, he starts building this city, and apparently step one is a giant tower, because this is Old Testament fanfic and we're not subtle. Of course, yes. This doesn't work, though. No matter what the builders do, the whole thing falls back down every night. Got it. All right. 
I had a note here. Pause in case Zoe wants to bring up Merlin. Oh, the tower. Ah, uh, I mean, this is so different, though. Like, the, the, the whole Tower of Babel thing is very obvious, but there is an element where the king, I think, believe it's Vortigern, is trying to build a tower. He's trying to build his castle on this ground, but it, it doesn't work. The ground is too bad for whatever reason, or it's cursed. I think technically in the Mabinogian, there's two dragons that are fighting, like, underneath the ground. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, like, feed the kid to the dragons, essentially, and they'll stop. But that is that is the other reference that you could pull on for this text, but I don't know how close that would be. No idea. But th- there is a possibility. There is a possibility. So this goes on for seven months, with Bacchus getting more and more pissed off until he asks his advisors, what the f***? Advisors say, call in the experts. So Bacchus summons, quote, four score and nine, unquote, philosophers and astronomers. I have to assume he already has construction experts on site and has exhausted any mundane explanations. Let's presume so for the sake of ease. The philosophers get three days to rest after their journey, and on the fourth day, Bacchus calls them in to explain what he wants from them. That's quite nice. Yeah. He starts by informing them that he is the greatest king living under the sun. Our anonymous annotator has written humble next to an emoticon with a flat (laughs) mouth. (laughs) Ah, yes. Hmm. (laughs) The hmm emoji. He then explains why he is at war with Garab. He's pulling a Harold Fairhair and trying to unify all the petty kings in the region under him. He calls it a, quote, parliament, unquote. But Garab won't play ball, probably because anyone who controls much of India isn't exactly a petty king. Fair enough. Then he lays out the issue with the tower. The philosophers, speaking as a chorus, I guess, ask for 40 days to work on the problem, and Bacchus agrees. Seems reasonable. 40 days later, they come back and say they've figured it out, and the project can start again on a day they'll specify within the fortnight, presumably when the stars are right. Yes. So they do this, they wait for the specific day, the builders start building again, and then when the builders go home, The philosophers do their thing. And I want you to try and guess what is the solution that these, how many of them are there again? 89 philosophers and astronomers have come up with. Okay, there's 89 of them. And the problem is that whatever the, whatever the hell they're trying to build keeps falling down every night. Mm -hmm. I want to say they're going to stay up and watch it to see it fall and see what the issue is there. That would be smart. They don't. Of course they don't, because why would logic prevail when when philosophers exist? What they do is, they get some lights, I assume fire, and set it all around the building site. And this is not specified, but I think the plan is they're tricking the building into thinking it's still daytime so that it doesn't fall down. I hate that. I hate that it's so stupid it would work. <laughs> That's the stupidest thing. They're like, obviously... The building will only fall down during the night. We just have to make sure it's daytime. <laughs> right. So we have Damn to it. make sure it's never night. No problem. I hate that. I hate Simples. that so much. <laughs> anyway, this doesn't work. And Bacchus is f***ed again. He yells at the philosophers and then throws them in prison. And according to the text, this is the first ever prison. So I guess we can blame Bacchus for inventing the things. You know, it's it's good to know that it had a starting point at all. Word of all this gets to Garab, 
and he thinks it's funny as hell. So he sends a letter to Bacchus that basically says, Hey, I know how to fix the tower problem, and I'll tell you if you send me your daughter. Damn it. Damn it. We're, okay, we had such original ideas, but this asshole is just gonna go with that, really? That's his plan? He could have asked for anything, and he just wants some p- Yep. Cringe, bro. Bacchus loses his and kills the messenger, but this apparently gives him an idea. Because he puts out a oh, proclamation. <laughs> Can't wait to see what this is. That he will offer his daughter's hand in marriage, plus a cash prize of half his treasure, to anyone who can find a solution to this tower thing. It's very fairy tale. That's more than what Garab wanted in the first place. Yes, but he doesn't like Garab. He's oh at war with gosh. him. Gosh. I mean, I guess that makes his daughter, like, off the table. But if the problem's solved, then there's not a controversy in the first place. So, okay, all right. He's being dumb, but all right. So it's not long before an old man shows up before the king and makes an offer. He doesn't want the daughter or the treasure, but he'll solve the problem in exchange for an unnamed favor. Okay, dangerous. There's a lot of unknowns here. There's so much going on. So the philosophers couldn't do it. And then Garab is like, I'll do it, but I want your daughter. And then he's out here saying, oh, I'll give my daughter and half of my treasure to anyone who could solve this problem. And instead, after all of this, some random guy is just like, I'll solve it, but I need an IOU. Yeah. All of this is whack. If this were a fairy tale or a TTRPG, this would be a huge red flag because we'd assume this were a supernatural trickster of some sort. Of course, yes. But it's not one of those genres, so let's see how it pans out. All right. The king agrees, and the old man says Bacchus needs to send word to King Tractabare and ask to borrow Noah's old book of astronomy, which, he says, was given to Noah by an angel, then passed on to Noah's son, and eventually ended up with this king somehow. And you also need to ask this king for his court astronomer, Sidrak. Then he'll be able to fix the problem. So we're, we're passing the buck. Yeah. But the guy still wants the favor. Right. He's not even solving the problem. That's okay. He never comes up in the story again. We don't even know what the favor was. Then why introduce it? <laughs> oh my gosh. I hate that. Come on, you guys. Although, perfect NPC right here. Yeah. I love this. Random guy, never shows up again. The players always have this hanging over their head. Like, when's that guy going to show up asking for a favor? Never does. That's it. So, Bacchus sends Tractabare a letter. And when Tractabare reads it, he says something a bit cryptic, which I'm going to quote directly. Uh, I'm not going to go all out with the Middle English accent. I'll just read it. That book can tell him, with skill, some things that bane on a hill, that whoso might come thereto, he might all his will do. My father went up to that hill, but he might never come there till. But King Bacchus is of Miche might. I wot he wol with him fight, that's a, with them fight, rather, that upon that hill doth won, Middle English for dwell, and he shall yes. have his will soon. Okay, I think I'm understanding the meaning, but I might be wrong here. Is he saying that Sidorak is sitting up on this hill like Little Miss Muffet with her ass on a tuffet? No, Sidorak's with Tractabare. He's going to carry the book to Bacchus. Okay, so he he just needs to go up on this hill? 
There's a hill. There, the book talks about a hill that his father okay. couldn't go to. But King Bacchus can fight the people who live on the hill because okay. he's a great king. This is very convoluted. I don't know if our listeners are going to be able to incorporate this into any kind of quest. <laughs> this just seems like a wild goose chase from back to front. Anyway, Tractabare okay. sends, sends Sidrak to Bacchus, along with the book, and a nice note that doesn't say anything weird about a hill. Good. <laughs> Sidrak, upon arrival tells Bacchus that his problem is that the land on which he's building is hella cursed. Always is. See, that stupid, dumb light thing obviously <laughs> wouldn't work. No, no, it's ridiculous. All 80, 81 philosophers. <sighs> I'm not even editorializing okay. that much with hella cursed. The actual phrase is every del ewitched, which basically means the same thing. It does. Luckily, Sidrak knows how to break the curse. And Bacchus says, go do it then. Sidrak explains how it must be done, along with a little world building. Ooh, I'm here for that. Once upon a time, an angel came to Noah and told him about this hill in India called either the Green Raven's Hill or the Raven's Green Hill, depending on which manuscript you're looking at. Okay, because cases are weird. The hill is so called because, you might remember, Noah sends a raven from the ark to look for land. Oh, that's right. And the raven doesn't come back. No, he found this hill, and there was some nice carrion on the hill, and the raven stopped for a snack and decided not to return. Makes sense. So this hill is pretty big, and on it dwell these dog-headed people who sound familiar. They do sound familiar. Yes, listen to our Wonders of the East episode, listeners. What are they called? Kynocephali. Ah, yes, thank you. I couldn't remember. Which is just Latin for dog head. Could have gone with something cooler, but, you know. I think. Nope, it's Greek. This hill is directly adjacent to a land that's inhabited only by women, which is an interesting detail that will never be mentioned again. That is also very akin to the Wonders of the East, however. It is. Interesting. There's a lot of crossover here. There, that's more than I thought there would be. Yeah, yeah, some of this stuff I'm is consistent. For that. So this hill, on this hill grow 12,000 different kinds of herbs, one-third of which are good, one-third of which are evil, and one-third of which are pointless. That's it? For real? Yeah. All of God's creation, and you're gonna dictate that there's a third of the herbs on this hill that are pointless? They're just there? A third of them do good things, a third of them do evil things, and a third of them don't really do anything. They're just plants. All right, I guess not every not every tree has to be medicinal. Not every plant has to be medicinal in nature, but still, like I don't know. I guess I guess I would characterize them in a binary state. Like dandelions are good when they're useful and they're evil when they're a weed that you don't want in your yard or like Why would anyone not want dandelions in their yard? Because because capitalism and gentrification. Yeah, fair. People like their yards. It's a sign of being rich, historically speaking. That is the correct answer. That is, historically speaking, the correct answer. But we can't get on this topic because I'll, I'll, I have so much opinion on this. And I'll get very angry I know. at the, I know at you the do. lawn culture. <laughs> the hill also has seven different kinds of water, which flow together and water the herbs. Bacchus needs to go right. get some of these herbs. And then he will have access to the kind of magic he needs to solve his problem. Okay. 
So Sidrak leads Bacchus, along with a retinue that the text calls his Miney, a word that I was oddly delighted to see again. That's It's a great word. <laughs> to this hill, which is apparently only a journey of 13 days from wherever Bacchus is. They're pretty close to the east then. Yeah. The hill is in India. That's, that's true. That's specific. That is true. They start gathering herbs, but a few days into their herb gathering, the Kynocephali, who live here, take exception to this. They fight and drive Bacchus's retinue off of the hill. Bacchus comes back and is driven off again. Bacchus calls for reinforcements and wins the third fight. The Kynocephali are described as, quote, defeated forevermore, unquote, which maybe means Bacchus did a genocide? I would imply that he did a genocide, yes. That would, that would be the implication. So now... We switch to focusing on the religious status of our main characters. Bacchus is heathen, and it is noted that when he travels, he brings his idols with them. Okay. These idols in the text are referred to as Mohammeds, which is another example of the weird medieval Christian <laughs> tendency to assume pagan means Muslim, even when it makes zero sense. Oh no! Because you can't have an image of the prophet Muhammad. You cannot. It is right? not allowed. Apparently, this is actually a matter of some debate, but we don't have time to go into that, so moving on. So, presumably, this Muslim guy is carrying around tiny little statues of Muhammad with him? Well, he also can't be Muslim, because this is set right. in the, the BC times. That's true, so, hmm. Muhammad hasn't even so been they're, born they're just... yet. <laughs> So they're just referring to the statues as Muhammad's. Yeah, because they think pagan and Muslim are the same thing. Not gonna lie, that's a little cute, but it's horribly irreverent and very misled. Yeah, it's, it's a disaster. That's so bad. <laughs> well, you can't win them all, I guess. Sidrak, however, is said to believe in the Trinity, which also makes zero sense because, again, we are in the BC times. He, he's figured it out with his big brain powers. Yes. So Bacchus sets up a pavilion with all these idols he has. He's got 30 of them, all wrought in gold and silver and jewels. And there's one boss idol that's placed like higher than the others. Yes. Bacchus brings in Sidrak and the rest of his retinue to do some sacrifice. By the way this is described, it involves a whole flock of sheep. So I don't know if they just found some or they've had them the whole time somehow. I mean, I guess if the dog people, like the dog-headed people had sheep, then they could just take them. But also, it was still fairly common. Like, if you're bringing a retinue, then you also bring your own supplies. So, could go either way on this one. Maybe they had sheep for exactly this reason. And they'll eat them later, I guess. Yeah. So, Sidrak won't participate because he's monotheistic. And Bacchus right. is f***ed again. Sidrak very diplomatically explains that all of Bacchus's gods are, quote, wicked and false. Unquote. I'm sure that's going to go great. And also that Bacchus is, quote, beguiled, unquote, by the, quote, devils, unquote, that live in the idols. This is a fairly common perception of medieval Christians. And anyway, Sidrak says he would rather die than sacrifice to Bacchus's gods. Oh, boy. So very, Here very diplomatic. Incredibly so. Great job. 10 out of 10. Bacchus shows him the boss idol, and is all, look how pretty, don't you want to kill just one sheep for such a pretty god? He really does just don't say like, like that. Look, look at how cool this idol looks. I mean, I, 
I can't really argue with him. Like that that's one of the cooler pieces of reasoning I've ever heard. Yeah. It's pretty to, good. like get somebody over to your religion is like, but doesn't they look cool? Yeah. So Sidrek again explains in his very diplomatic way that this god is, quote, the devil's limb, unquote. And if Bacchus wants his advice, he'll abandon all of these hellhounds. Bacchus asks Sidrak what this god is that he worships that's so much better than his pretty little idols. And Sidrak mm-hmm. says God is a big light that makes him happy. I'm gonna I'm gonna need you to I'm gonna need you to read the line on that one. Because I wanna know. <laughs> Let me find it. A big light that makes him happy. I mean, I don't doubt you. I just want to <laughs> know it from his own words. All right, let's see. Um, da, 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 da. Sire, I shall you tell Iwis. My god a ghostly substance is, so that the angel of heaven light, that been so noble and so bright, more than the sun by sevenfold, yet have they joy on him to behold. Yeah, no, he's saying he's a he's a pretty big light. Yeah. yeah, he's a big light. Makes uh, you happy. Yeah, that's that's not very elucidating, sir. No, it's not Apparently any help at all. that's my word of the day. I've said it like three times, so... All right. Bacchus has two of his clerks debate Sidrak, but Sidrak defeats them with logic and reason. Not shown. Of course he did. After this offstage debate... Of course. They challenge Sidrak to an Elijah off where they'll pray to their gods, and Sidrak will pray to Hell his, yes. and we'll see who gets a sign from the heavens. I was hoping this would happen. I feel like we need more of these. I definitely want to see this. I feel like it would genuinely campaign. solve a lot of problems if we all accepted this as like a way for people to sort out their religious differences. 100%. It's like, all right, you pray and you pray, and if one of you gets a sign, then they're right. Then that's and if it. neither of you yeah. get a sign, both of you shut up. I really love this in D&D. Oh? I love this as an idea in D&D. Like, whether you have two party members who are doing this, which you'd have to be careful for and let the dice gods decide because you don't want to, you know, do the whole favoritism thing. You got to be careful with that. But like two NPCs who are going at it because they both believe their god is correct. And then what if the quest is to like sabotage the other one and the party has to figure out how to do that? I don't know. I'm rolling with that. Anyway, we'll come back to that one later. So the clerks go first, Bacchus's clerks, and their god answers. Wait, Bacchus's clerk? Oh, Bacchus's clerks, not not Sidorak. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Their god answers, or according to the text, the devil that lives in the idol answers. Of course. And the idol says, hey, set that guy on fire. Okay. Which guy? Sidorak. Oh, Okay. I mean, reasonable if, you know, you're a god and somebody doubts you. According to the notes, by the way, in the French version, the idol wants Sidrak to not only be burned, but also to be publicly quartered. But the translator toned it down. Can't fault him for that, really, in this case. So the clerks are, you know, about to get up and do that. But Sidrak does his prayer. And his god actually has the same answer, but is more proactive about it. He just sets the guys on fire himself? Fire from heaven destroys all of the idols, plus a hundred and twenty oh, bystanders. This is problematic. Which seems excessive. Yeah, very excessive, yes. So now there's fire, and the devils that have been driven out of the destroyed idols are shrieking, and everyone is panicking. Okay. Bacchus throws Sidrak in prison for committing mass murder with magic fire. 
which I guess required building a prison because they are still on the hill. <laughs> I was going to say, hmm, all right. Like, they don't have any permanent buildings. They're in a big tent. So the, the first prison is just a temporary holding cell. No, this is the second prison. The first one is the one that the philosophers are in. Oh, okay, that's right, yes. This guy's a little gung-ho for his prisons, huh? He decided he liked the idea, and now he's just not going to stop. He's rolling with it. Nine days later, Bacchus summons his advisors and asks what they should do, since they're in a foreign land trying to break a curse, and the guy who knows what's going on just burned a long hundred of people with fire from the sky. One of the advisors stands up and says, Why don't we let Sidrak out so we can finish what we came here to do, and then we can just kill him when we get home? Pretty reasonable. I changed my mind. This isn't not a good thing for our listeners to use for their campaigns. This is just a campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and Sidorak is the PC. Very <laughs> That's much. That's what happened. <laughs> he's like, oh, shoot. Now I'm in prison. Well, and then, you know, the DM is floundering and he's like, oh, crap. Well, I got to get this guy out. What am I going to do? He cast divine intervention and it f***ing worked. <laughs> I didn't plan for this. Anyway, everyone thinks that let Sidorak out but kill him later is a great idea. And so Bacchus sends 10 of his advisors to go fetch him out of prison. The advisors go tell Sidorak that the king forgives him for using witchcraft to firebomb his pavilion. And Sidorak says that he doesn't want the king's forgiveness. He wants him to convert or Sidorak's not going to help anymore. Very lawful good paladin of him, yeah. He is a mass murderer. He's lawful something. I mean... (laughs) Lawful evil paladin? I don't know at this point. Honestly, I'm not going to say he's... I'm I'm not even sure he's lawful. This may just be a random whim. No, I guess he's lawful. I mean, he's doing it in in the service of his his god. Yeah, he clearly has some kind of moral structure. I don't know. Just defining lawful and chaotic in D&D terms is another rabbit hole that we don't have time for. That's true. That's rough. Don't be strict about alignment, folks. So the advisors bring the message back to Bacchus, who is, of course, f***ed off again. And he says that they'll let him stew for nine more days and try again. They do, and they get the same result. So Bacchus says to bring him out of prison anyway, and he'll talk to Sidrak himself. All right. So Bacchus asks Sidrak, look, where do we go from here? And Sidrak replies, well, now you convert. Of course he does. Bacchus, visibly annoyed, that is specified, says, Okay. Fine, give me the pitch. <laughs> I like it. All right. Ballsy, this one. Sidrak, instead of doing that... Oh, no. Okay. ...decides to go off and uh, prepare first, because 18 days with nothing else to occupy his time was not enough. Of course. Why would it be? He does a prayer for about half a page, and an angel shows up. Angel says, Good news, Sidrak. This is totally going to work out. Tell Bacchus about how God made the world. Then tell him about how God is going to send his son down at some point in the future. It is future tense, which is the first time the author seems to remember what time he set this in. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's so fascinating. Then tell him about the Antichrist and the end of the world. Then set up a clay pot full of water on top of three stakes. Have him look inside and it'll be cool. That doesn't much sound like conversion to me, but okay. Sidrak has no follow-up questions. Of course he doesn't. He's a prophet. So Sidrak goes to do this, and he might have skipped the actual sermon because it does not say that he gave this pitch in any way. But he does set up the pot of water with the stakes and tells Bacchus to look in it. Bacchus does. And Uh, 
He sees a vision of heaven and of the Trinity, feels overwhelming joy, and converts on the spot. I feel like you just drugged this guy, man. That's what I have in the next sentence! (laughs) (laughs) I was like... I don't think this counts as a conversion! Yeah, there's something in that water. They're like fumes. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, 100%, because this is not what a Christian conversion (laughs) should look like in any sense. Our mystery annotator has written, that was fast. (laughs) He's right. Yes. Okay. So Bacchus asks Sidrak to explain what he just saw. And Sidrak explains the Trinity using an analogy to the sun. That's sun with a U. Right. The father is the sun itself. The sun is the sun's light. This would be easier if they weren't homophones. And the Holy Ghost is the sun's heat. Okay. But they're all the sun. But they're all the sun. You know, I can kind of get on board with that. Yeah, I, I, that honestly kind of makes sense. That that, that kind of works as, as a, you know, it's it's better than the fidget spinner metaphor that I heard. Yep, that's what I was looking for, listeners. <laughs> Look at that face palm. 10 out of 10. Love it. Uh, the thing is, I can imagine yeah. exactly what that metaphor was. Because the fidget spinner has yeah. those three lobes. Like, yeah, it's, it's got right the there. three. Yeah, yeah. And then if you spin it, it's all one. Yeah, that's terrible. It's real bad. It's really, really bad. It's the worst I've, I've ever heard. Ugh. But anyway, it's been done. Speaking as someone who is outside of, of this whole thing, like I guess I'm culturally part of it because I'm in a majority Christian country, but otherwise outside, the sun thing sounds better. Yeah, absolutely. Ten- yeah, much better. Anyway. Anyway, Bacchus is over the f***ing moon about this, which again makes me think drugs, and agrees that this makes complete sense, and he believes all of it, and he hereby renounces the gods of his ancestors. Cool boy. All right. That's, that's a lot. Word gets out about this. And the rest of Bacchus's retinue are pissed. Because again, Sidrak did kill a bunch of them with magic fire, and now he seems to have hypnotized their king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would have a similar conclusion. Yeah, their immediate reaction is actually, they seem to think that Bacchus has had some kind of psychotic break. Yeah, understandable. So some advisors go to Bacchus and explain that the whole retinue is pretty upset because the king has abandoned the traditions of their people in favor of trusting some witch. They do literally call him a witch. He, I mean, I am also calling him a witch. Yeah, like from the perspective of anyone who is not like buying into this guy as a prophet, like, yeah, that's obvious. Obviously, he's a witch. Yeah, 100%. Like, you don't really get to call yourself a prophet when you're not really prophesying, you're just, you're sort of, you're doing witchcraft. Yeah. You're, you're doing witchcraft, my guy. Bacchus responds that they don't understand. He saw God and now he's going to live a godly life. And also, by the way, all of the gods of our people are, quote, false and bad, unquote. And our cultural ways are, quote, a cesspit of false belief, unquote. Oh boy. The advisors withdraw and decide to try that again. I mean, so far, the, that's been the advisor's advice this entire time, and it hasn't worked very well. They do seem to just go like, okay, let's try that again. Like, that seems to be like their response to a lot of things. I do like that they're using negotiation as a tactic first rather than violence. Yeah. So I'll, you know, I'll give the advisors that, which is a lot for a medieval text. Well, they did just kill like a whole bunch of kinocephali, So maybe they're, they're burnt out on the violence thing for now. Eh, that's fair. Maybe so. I mean, and this is their king, you know? Yeah. 
All right, so. So the advisors nominate the four smartest among them to go have a debate against Sidrak. These four go up to Bacchus and patiently explain that it looks a whole lot like, and I quote directly, this witch with his witchcraft has stolen your wits. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Indeed. I'll bet that's wonderful in verse. It is not. That's wonderful for you. The verse is honestly not great, but I'm not a Ah. poetry expert. Maybe it's very good if you know what you're looking for. They'd like him to call out Sidrak so they can discuss matters. Yes, please bring your witch outside, O Lord, O King. Sidrak again destroys them with facts and logic. Oh my gosh. I want to hear some of these facts and logic at this point. I would also, but... I'd like to highlight, I'm not glossing over the debate because I want to. The entire conversation is in the following two lines. And he destroyed, by good reason, their gods and their false opinion. That really is just, he destroyed them with facts and logic. It's such a meme. Mm Mm-hmm. I, mmm. What is this text that you have brought before me? I know, right? It's ridiculous. What is going on? (laughs) This is not... I don't even know what this is at this point. I was actually really tempted when I was doing the conversation to give Sidrak a Ben Shapiro voice, but I couldn't bring myself. Yeah, for real! Like, um, facts don't care about your feelings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's that guy. He's that guy. Facts don't care about your gods. (laughs) Oh boy, alright. So edgy, my guy. (laughs) So the advisors again withdraw, and they spend some time wailing and mourning until they think of an alternate plan. I feel like they deserve some time to wail and mourn, given everything that is happening in their life at the moment. They've been dragged out to this hill, and nothing is actually happening on this hill except, you know, their king has been bewitched. Well, they did gather some herbs and fight a small war. That's, I guess that's all they needed, is is the herbs. We don't really know, based on this prophecy, to be fair. No, they don't know the next step. The step one was get herbs. And then they got bogged down in this. Jeez. All right. So their new plan is as follows. They will fill a goblet with venom and get Sidrak to drink it. Seems, yeah, at this point, yeah. Now, you'd think this is an assassination attempt. Yes. But they're not being sneaky about it. They bring the goblet to him and say, Hey, Sidrak, this is full of venom. Are you willing to drink it in order to prove that you have divine protection? Oh, boy. I mean, that's also a really great way to get a guy who's, like, a complete narcissist to kill himself. Yeah, like, honestly, if it hadn't been for the magic fire thing, I would also assume this would work perfectly. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So Sidrak says, sure, no problem, and he chugs it. And our annotator writes, challenge accepted. (laughs) I love this guy. In what class were you that had this book assigned? I have no idea. Because that is wild. It might have been another grad student who just, like, likes this stuff. Who knows? That's amazing. Sidorak is indeed just fine, Rasputin-style, but God is getting annoyed and decides to kill these four advisors with lightning. Oh my gosh. Why did we make this guy the Christian? I don't know. He's terrible. He's horrible. But, like, all the, all the medieval, like, conversion narratives, the Christians are horrible. Yeah, like, 99% of them, yeah, yeah. At least the ones that are, you know, trying to give you a lesson. I forgot the word. All I could come up with was diegetic, but that's not the term. Didactic? Didactic, thank you. Yeah. I think it's because, like, they don't want to say 
the reason the church is so big is because people join in order to get access to trade deals or to get not killed. Right. They have to say, like, no, our faith can be defended by reason. Of course, but the thing is, is that even in this text, there's not, like, the power of God is not converting people. It's just killing them. It did convert Bacchus. He was drugged. <laughs> I don't. I, that was a spell. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that the power of God there. That's a uh, oof. But yeah, so they have to go like either, okay, the story is God intervenes directly. Or the story is the Christians destroy them with facts and logic. Neither right. of which are things that actually happen, but it sounds way better than the truth. Right. Which is that people convert out of pragmatism or fear. Right, but the thing is to me that even even this text does not make the Christians look good. Like, it's wild to me that this is framed as a Christian narrative. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. Because that, that is also a trend that, like, a lot of these stories about, like, Christians going among the pagans from the medieval times... I think it's just kind of assumed that the audience will automatically side with the Christian so they don't have to worry yeah. about making him likable. That's wild to me. That is wild. He's good because he's Christian. He talks to an angel. That's Therefore, not... he's the good guy. <clears throat> and these guys are bad because they're pagan. They have Mohammeds. That is not how that works. They have Mohammeds. Oh my gosh, stop. Ah, this isn't even, this is pre-Christian. I don't even, oh boy. <laughs> All right, okay. I mean, look, there's no way I can fax and logic my way out of this story. So let's just keep going. All right. So the advisors are killed with lightning and our annotator writes, ha, smiting. Fair enough. This is witnessed. And the rest of the retinue starts wondering if Sidrak maybe has a point. However, it's not that easy because all of the devils that were driven out when Bacchus's idols got nuked apparently found, quote, other images, unquote, to live in. And now they cry out to Bacchus. Okay. They have a speech that goes on for most of a page, but it boils down to, Bacchus, this guy is obviously a witch. Haven't we been good to you? Just go back to your traditions and we can keep that ball rolling. Also, just FYI, we can totally f*** you up if you keep listening to the witch. See, you could also flip that as a narrative and make this idol like a chorus of angels and have yeah. Sidorak be like the instrument of the devil if you will and it still doesn't get any better yeah it's not good either way neither side here is good i honestly think that neither the author nor the audience is really thinking of this in terms of morality of like which of these is behaving righteously but just that, like, right. this guy's on our side, and these guys are not on our side. Right, it's purely in us versus them. Yeah. Fascinating. So, this actually does seem to work. Bacchus and the retinue are described as being impressed by the speech and looking vaguely embarrassed about this whole Sidrak thing. Right. But Sidrak is like, tell you what, I'll go fight the devil about it. <laughs> Alright, sure, you go do that. So he breaks the new images with a hammer. Oh, Lord. Okay. At which point, an earthquake and a storm kick up, and there's a horrible din of demonic shrieking, and angry devils start heading towards them. 
All right. Sidrak goes up to the king, who's kind of just standing there looking terrified and probably getting rained on, and says, Hey, don't worry about it. The angry devils probably aren't going to murder us all. I need this guy as the BBEG in a campaign. I think he'd make a good villain. He'd make a very good villain because he's all like facts and logic and debate, but he just uses brute force. Plus he's a nerd and there's like, there's that hint of unsuspecting, just a nerd. Oh, I'm just a guy that suddenly turns very, very bad, very, very quickly that I think is very alluring as a, as a GM. You can also really roll with the fact that he, do- he doesn't seem to be planning ahead at all. Mm-mm. He just assumes that things are going to work out, but the way things work out is usually violence. Yes, yes. He's a very compelling bad guy. Yeah. All right. So anyway, so he's going to go fight the devil about it. No, the hammer thing was fighting the devil. That's oh, all okay. he was going to do. It's super effective. An angel shows up and instructs them to take that pot of water from earlier and cast the water into the four corners of whatever unspecified building they're standing in. It might still be that... No, it can't be the, the pavilion. The pavilion, the pavilion got blown up. <laughs> the, this, their new pavilion. <laughs> yeah. And do a little ritual, and all of this will protect them from the devils. Cool. So we're doing more witchcraft. Yes, witchcraft. Cool. But it's okay because an angel said so. Sure it was, buddy. <laughs> Another angel then shows up with a flaming sword, kills the devils, and breaks all the rest of the idols that were still laying around. Oh my gosh, okay. Everyone's very impressed. I I, I would be too, I guess. Bacchus asks what that thing with the water was, and Sidrak explains that the three stakes on which the pot was set represent the Trinity. Oh lord, here we go again. represents God. The water represents Jesus. (laughs) And casting it to the four corners represents the four of it. He keeps going. This takes over a page. Of course, because it's the four corners of the earth. And this is part of his conversion sermon. This is the worst sermon I've ever heard. (laughs) Even worse than the fidget spinner? Yeah, we've reached that point. <laughs> he's, he's I guess gone the fidget spinner genocide. didn't kill anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So Bacchus is very impressed by this explanation and says, Hey, Sidrek, I've actually got a couple other questions. And Sidrek says he'd be happy to answer. Now, Wikipedia says there are 1,227 questions. Oh, boy. But either they're wrong or the Middle English version is very abridged because this copy only has 415. Oh, okay. And like I said, we're not doing them this time. Right. But this, and, and this is the bulk of the text here, is the actual conversation. Yes. The questions take up about 11,000 lines of poetry. Oh my gosh. All this and we haven't even reached the actual bulk of the text. I'm impressed. All right. But we do need to finish the story. So after yes. the questions, we do get the end of the story, which is less than 100 lines long. Oh, very quick. Bacchus thanks Sidrak for the tutorial session, then reminds him that they were here about a tower and maybe they should look into that. Oh my gosh. So they go home. Sidrak, quote, devised the foundation of the tower in the name of the Trinity, unquote, whatever that means. And they finished the tower in 26 days. No mention of those herbs they collected. That may have been a red herring. So, so what was the entire point? This whole thing, this entire thing is just a bunch of devils playing tricks on this poor king who just wanted to build a tower. So 
King Garab hears the tower is complete. And apparently this is very frightening to him because he sends a messenger asking for mercy from Bacchus. And this is a, a little weird because there was supposed to be a whole city. Like the tower was just the first building. Right. Bacchus says they won't go to war if Garab converts to Christianity or oh, whatever, since there's no Jesus yet. So you right. can't really be Christian. So Garab does. So what is he converting to? I guess Judaism, but since they're all anti-Semitic, I don't know why. Is it like, is this like pre-Zoroastrianism? I don't... I'm pretty sure Zoroastrianism has been around forever, but like, that's a different god. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess, I mean, like, it's... I wonder if this is like a very early Christian blah 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 whatever form of Zoroastrianism, because that was monotheistic, was it not? I think so. Zoroaster is, I think, a, a monotheistic guy. Yeah. Let me ask Wikipedia just to be sure, though. I wonder if it's just... All I remember is that the Persians that the Romans kept fighting were Zoroastrians, and they have kind of a fire symbolism thing going on. That is the same general area of the world. I wonder if this story is, like, one of those early stories that just got corrupted, and then some Christians grabbed it. Okay, Zoroaster is the prophet, not the god. The god is Ahura Mazda. And it's kind of monotheistic. It's dualistic, actually. Oh, okay. Future Mac here. I looked into it a little more, and there is apparently some ongoing discussion on whether Zoroastrianism should be considered monotheistic or dualistic. And it really comes down to, like, how specifically you want to define those terms. But that's really out of our area, so I'm just going to leave it there. I just wanted to cut into temper past max assertion there all right so garab converts to whatever right and that settles the matter but eventually bacchus garab and sidrak all die presumably of old age and all their people go back to paganism the end all for naught poor yep. sidrak i guess what a so that's the story of sidrak and bacchus well huh I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I'm impressed. <laughs> I don't know what else to make of this tale. It's a weird one. It's very strange, yeah. That's why I wanted to take a whole episode to tell the story properly instead of just using the questions. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, shall we jump into our segments? Yes. See what we can glean Let's. from this thing. What say you? Best dialogue. I'm going to go with Hella Cursed. The tower's Hella Cursed. Yeah, that is pretty good, actually. <laughs> because there was just so much fun in that Middle English line itself. Everydell witched. Yeah, either that or the tongue twister one where it said he was a witch. I, I do like that they made it clear how it looks from their point of view. Like, that was yes. a good authorial choice. Definitely. Plus, you get that alliteration, you get the W's. It seems like a moment of awareness. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I like that one. I'll go with that one. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. All right. All Toprast. Best death. I mean, if you're going to go out, getting smited is kind of kind of a cool way to go. Preferably not as a bystander. I would want to be one of the individuals involved. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Like, random smiting. Yeah, just ha happening eh. to be in the wrong place. Not great. Yeah, not great. But, like, deliberate smite? That's a way to go. 
Yeah, at least then you feel like you you earned it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. All right, yeah. we'll go with that. Get smoked. Get smoted. How can we use this in D&D? Well, we already talked about Sidorak being the perfect BBEG. Yeah, he's very good for that. He's a great bad guy. Especially, in my opinion, because he's very unassuming at first. The party can meet Mm -hmm. him. They can be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, you're a prophet. You're a witch. Like, whatever. And then this guy goes bat insane for no reason. Yeah. I love it. And just have, like, oh, he he happens to be favored by his god. Yeah. And his god has, like, a hair trigger. And Sidrak has has no interest in, like, trying to mitigate this at all. He's just like, I'm sure it'll work out. It's chill, you guys. He knows the way. Like, that's a legitimate threat. That's terrifying. What a great villain. Man. I do also like the idea, aside from Sidorak, of two local factions or religions as, like, feuding back and forth. And the party is, like, secretly hired by one to sabotage the other by any means possible. What does that look like? Do they flip sides? Are they doing this just to f*** around? Why are the party doing this? Are they actually religious and they they need this to succeed? What does that look like? I think that would be hilarious as a quest. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I would want to see what they come up with. Definitely. What else? I like the idea of trying to build a tower on cursed land. Definitely. That is also a quest. That's a great quest. And it's also something that you can use for your players as both a quest hook and a resource. Once they figure out how to build a tower on Cursed Land, they get the tower. Because a lot of, like, once you level up in a lot of D&D games, you get, like, a home base. So that's a really cool way yes. to have a home base. Yes, and I, I think that should be in more D&D campaigns. I feel like it doesn't get enough attention. Cursed Land or resource management? Well, resource management, but I meant specifically the idea of having some kind of home base. Yeah, oh yeah, that's so cool. Because I feel like a lot of them are just like, you know, it's it's very Lord of the Rings. Like, there's one big journey. Mm-hmm. And then when the journey's over, it's just like, okay, it's time for the epilogue. And yeah, like, at disband. no point did they like, yeah, like they didn't establish themselves as part of society. They just went out and did a thing. Right. But I feel like the part where they like have to maintain some kind of property and be a part of larger societal machinations is one of the more interesting parts of the game. Oh, 100%. That's what I love in terms of higher level campaigns is that the party now has some sort of renown or infamy and they have to deal with the consequences of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that that's, it's even better with a home base where you can be like, okay, not only do you have to like manage your reputation, but also like, Hey, you're a baron now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are you doing about that barony you Mm -hmm. have to manage? Yep. You got to pay people, man. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What else can we pull from this? I had a few notes. I like the whole concept of the Hill of Green Ravens, both in name and like vibe. Yes. I do like that. I'm trying to think of something for the herbs. Like evil herbs. I mean, just having a quest where like the herbs are the goal, I think is pretty good. I do like also like there are good herbs and evil herbs. And then there are ones that are like, they're just plants. They're just plants. They don't do anything. I I don't know how to incorporate that, but I like it. I want to figure out a way to incorporate that. 
Like, maybe you can't tell them apart, and you have to, like, individually test them and hope your concoction is correct. You have to detect evil on each individual herb. On each herb. plant, yeah. I do think the iconoclasm is very, very interesting, and I think it would be fascinating to have maybe a character who either restores statues of gods or destroys statues of gods, because typically in D&D, like, the gods are a given as fact. But what does that look like if you are a paladin, for instance, who has been tasked to destroy other people's gods? Like that, and that's a very tricky topic to bring up in a game. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that's very, very interesting, especially if you wanted to run like a lawful good campaign where there is something, some kind of like evil fodder, for instance, like orcs in Lord of the Rings, where you go about destroying evil or restoring things. Like, how do you restore these statues that are being taken out? Like, what does that look like? But I think iconoclasm in general can be a very, very powerful thing for a GM to use in a game, particularly to get certain points across, because funnily enough, D&D and TTRPGs can be very religious in focus, in the sense that classes like cleric, warlock, paladin are focused on who your god is and where your magic comes Mm -hmm. from. So I think iconoclasm there is a great way to inspire tension, inspire quests, inspire agency in your players that sometimes can get undercut. So, I don't know, food for thought there. I think it would also make it more interesting if maybe there are spirits living in the idols. Yeah. Like, and if you're destroying the idols, that means you have a fight coming. Mm -hmm. And if you're restoring the idols, that means you have to convince spirits to live in them again. Oh, how cool would that be? Like, a little homeless spirit comes up to you like, can you please find me a house? I need a house again. Yeah, that would be cute. I like that. That's a little cozy, like, level one quest for you. Like, find them a little house. And then who knows? Maybe they become a powerful spirit and help you later when you're level 15. Yeah. I like that. Honor honor the spirits. I like the idea of a character who is literally a witch pretending to be a prophet. Oh, yes. I like that. That's like the rogue pretending to be a wizard. Yeah. But instead, you're a witch pretending to be a prophet. Yeah, you just cast spells and then you're like, that was a miracle. I like that. I like that. I feel like there's a lot of really cool ways you can you can twist that. All right. And finally, my note is, and this is more about the whole, like, concept of the text rather than specific items. So Sidrak has this, like, divine revelation thing going on. And most of the text is him answering questions with his amazing knowledge. Right. Yes. So what if you had a character who had been divinely granted huge amounts of knowledge, but like Sidrak, it's wrong? (laughs) Oh, no. Like, because most of the stuff this text teaches you is not accurate. Oh my gosh. I love that. So that made me think of like, what, what, if, what if you're getting divine misinformation? Like they've, they've given you great knowledge, but it's not correct. Oh my gosh. Like something about the humors or like how to, how to mix certain potions or like, oh yeah, you got to use greater restoration on XYZ and it totally doesn't work. Yeah. Or you get like a great book of wisdom, like the like Noah's book of astronomy here, 
but it's just wildly inaccurate and or the information's all incredibly outdated. And this guy thinks he's spitting facts. He thinks he's helping yeah. people. Poor guy. And he does actually talk a lot about the humors in this, so that's a good example. Oh too. boy. That's fantastic. Especially if you have characters who are like well educated or are like wizards or people who would know about this stuff. You just have this guy who's like, I can I have the great book of wisdom. And like, do your players have to deal with this and debate him? And they're like, no, you're the sky is blue, old man. It's blue. Okay. Like 10 out of 10. Love it. But then he destroys them with facts and logic. Oh my gosh. So cringe. It's real bad. Street smart. What are we learning here? Don't let the guy out of prison. Yeah, if someone uses witchcraft to commit mass murder, don't just give him another chance. Like, that's a problem. You need to deal with that first. First, yes. I'm Like, I'm not like a, a big, like, I don't support the carceral state or anything, but this guy's dangerous. You need to do something about him other yep. than like... Okay, guy, what's your pitch for your religion? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This man is drugging your your king. I don't I don't think you really want him out and about. If you're killing people with magic fire, I'd rather not be part of that religion. Yeah, no thank you. Gosh. If a guy comes at you saying that he's got a book of wisdom, maybe maybe be a little doubtful. Don't take anything he says at face value. Yeah, also fair. Yeah. One third of all plants are evil. Apparently. Or at least the ones on that hill. But I think it's better if it applies to everything. Yeah. I would love to know, like, of the collection, the taxonomy of plants that we have, what third of them are toxic to us and what third of them are, like, or, like what are, not the thirds, but, like, what is the number? What is the percentage of plants that are toxic to us versus beneficial? Like, does it come out to thirds? I want to know. What is that number? That would be interesting to know. I feel like that would be hard to figure out. I, it might be a, an insurmountable task, but my my curiosity is piqued. Maybe just don't take deals from people who just want a favor in return, because they're going to send you off to some kooky witchcraft guy. Also, you know what? If you're trying to build something, and it seems cursed, try building it somewhere else. Yeah! Maybe Maybe don't have that determination. Like, I'm all all here for drive. I'm all here for motivation, that grind, whatever. But, like, maybe consider that it's cursed. Maybe consider that your plan is not the best idea. Maybe scrap it, come up with a new one. That thing fell down every night for seven months. That's literally a couple hundred times. Yeah. You'd think they'd go, like, this isn't working. Yeah. I mean, hopefully at least all those guys got paid for every day that they worked. Like, they're doing the same work over and over I mean, again. I hope. I mean, at least you have job security. I mean, I feel like it probably didn't go super great for them because I bet they caught a lot of the blame. That's true. Well, the supervisor probably did. Hopefully not the actual guys. Yeah. It's not their fault. Well, you know, it rolls downhill. That's true. Best moment. What is the best moment? I liked when King Garab sent a message saying, I know the answer to your problem, and I'll tell you if you send me your daughter. I know that that's like weird and patriarchal, but it was also pretty funny. It's really funny. What was the solution again? The land was cursed. So they just lifted the curse or they just moved the building project? 
It's genuinely not clear. It says that, let me look up the phrase again, because I did write it down directly. It says that Sidrak devised the foundation in the name of the Trinity. I don't know what that means, but it solved the problem. Who knows? He put the cornerstones in like a, yeah, who knows? Maybe it's a triangle now. I guess. Well, gosh, best moment. Is there a best moment? That one's pretty good. I don't know. I am so dumbfounded by this entire text. I think it's also worth noting the like reverse bird gambit where they put light around the tower to convince it it's day. Yes, I like that one. I think that's my best moment. Like these dumb <laughs> philosophers are like, I know, we'll personify the building. That'll work. It can't fall down at night if night never or it happens. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. Final rating. Gosh. You go first. <laughs> I'm gonna. Mm, I'm gonna give it a six point five. Yeah, I'm honestly hovering around the same area. Yeah, it's so absurd that it's funny, but it reaches so far past the point of absurdism that you're just sitting there like, what the hell is going on? Plus then, in the middle of this text, you have to you have to get through all the questions. Mm-hmm. So, 6.5. I'm going to come close to that. I'm going to go ahead and give it a full 7. Because, right. look, it's not a good book. This is a bad <laughs> story. And as someone who read the direct text, I'm, I don't think it's well written either. No, it's bad. But, but it's so bad it's good. It, it warps it's back around dumb. to being funny just no. because how dumb it is. No, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it's, like, it's like that movie The Room. Like, The Room is a terrible movie, but it's so fun to watch. That's fair. That's fair. It's fun to watch it fall apart. I will give it that. All right. A messenger. Just a, a quick listener, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Correspondence section here. Yeah. We have had a few things come up on the Discord with people responding to recent episodes, and they've shared some interesting information that I thought other people might be interested in. Yeah, fun fact section, if you will. Yeah. So you may remember in the tournament episode when we did our Q&As, we talked about what medieval clothing we'd like to bring back. Mm-hmm. AC Esquire has told me that the school they went to for their master's degree kept the academic gown tradition. So apparently it's not just an Oxbridge thing. And they added that they come in different colors and different ways to wear it, depending on where you are in your schooling. And showed a picture of one that actually looks nicer than the ones I've seen worn at graduations. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, actually. Yeah, it's pretty. It's very pretty. It looks like it's made of better fabric, is what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying. Oh, yeah, definitely. And regarding our latest Ale episode, Excalibur has some theories about these peoples that we kept getting confused about. Yes. Who are these people, anyway? These people in, in what is modern, well, I guess what was always the British Isles. Anyway. Yeah, so... They suggest that Bretland might have been Strathclyde and Northumberland might have been Viking York, which sounds just as plausible to me as anything else, honestly. Yeah, it seems seems fairly accurate to me, especially for the period and what was going on. And also, I mentioned this in like a future Mac in the actual episode, but the enhazeling thing, 
Excalibur also mentions. This is apparently a accepted dueling custom among the early English, where you cut hazel rods and lay them on the ground to outline the dueling area. And so that means that they literally are having a duel, but with armies. Crazy. And that is according to Jamie Jeffers of the British History Podcast. Yeah. So you can go check that out if you want to know more about that. Because the only information in our episode is from a Old Norse dictionary, <laughs> rather Which than not, an article. Not super, yeah, yeah, a little bit difficult. So I thought other people might want to know that stuff. Yeah, very good, very good. So with that, listeners, if you would like to join in on such fun discourse, along with some fantastic memes of illuminated manuscript logos for companies like Facebook and McDonald's and other such fun things. Those are all in our Discord. You are more than welcome. Please come join us. You'll find links for that in our other social media and our Patreon down in the description and the show notes. So do check that out. And thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. <laughs> oh no. No, I just saw how you spelled Sidrak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am terrible with spelling. Uh, like Sidrak. <laughs> Sidrak. Side Tasteful Sidrak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 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 it's been a long week. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>